I'm Rochelle, and I'm bringing you the Bible reading tonight from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the whole chapter. So you can follow on the screen or um, in your Bibles if you've got them, or iPads or phones or whatever. Um, My Bible calls it on divisions in the church. Brothers, you could not, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned each ta- um, to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to the light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what has been built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames." Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. This is the word of God. Father God, uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the, for the opportunity to, to dive into it, to learn more about you, uh, and to, to listen to the Spirit uh, as it convicts us about how we best pursue you in this life. Um, please open up our hearts to your word, and open up your word to our hearts. Amen. So, the gospel message is both the simplest message the world could ever hear, and also the most wildly complicated message the world could ever hear. It needs to be simple because it has to be comprehensible 
to everyone. It must be available and accessible to people across all periods of time, across all places in the world, across all uh, levels of, of, uh, of you know, personal intellect. It, it just needs to be available for everyone on the world. Um, and that message in its simplest form really comes out like you have turned away from God, but God through Jesus can forgive you. That's a fairly simple message. But it also needs to be the most complicated message in the world, or almost complex and deep, because in its greatest form, the gospel needs to be able to answer all questions about human history, about all of philosophy, uh, all human action, everything else has root in God's word and, and the message that God gives to us. And so these truths, this necessary simplicity and the necessary complexity, they come together to mean that the gospel has to be available to all, but can never be fully grasped in the deepest of its mysteries by anyone. And we all continue to grasp around doing our best, getting better at handling God's word. And it's inevitable as we do that, that we ourselves find uh, teachers or heroes in the faith, people we can defer to in some matters of judgment about our faith. But what Paul encounters in Corinth is, is not this deference to the leadership of good teachers, but a total deference of responsibility, a, a whole and total deference of responsibility and a, a manner of operating the church that honors the leader but not the king. And now to refresh with some context, Paul has founded this church in the Gentile city of Corinth. And he's gone away to continue his mission elsewhere. And then he hears the Corinthian church has been infiltrated by false teachers, people who are leading those that he led to Christ. And these false teachers are leading them astray. And so he writes this letter. And the first two chapters hammer down Paul's opening message that worldly wisdom does not apply to the Christian life. And that Christian wisdom seems foolish to the world. And this divide is going to be there whether we like it to or not between the world and between God's church. And so the message we have today is related to that. It follows on just as worldly wisdom, Christ's, uh, just as worldly wisdom and Christ's wisdom are divided from one another, we know that worldly wisdom can only build a worldly kingdom. It cannot build up the kingdom of God. That's the work exclusively of the Holy Spirit. God builds up his church through the actions of his Holy Spirit. And we'll see that theme come out again and again in this passage. Let's look again at verses one through four. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, or another, I follow, follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? These passages are filled with these interesting expressions and metaphors that Paul uses. And uh, the most obvious is this idea of spiritual infants. Now, there are a, uh, a bunch of traits that divide humans from the other creatures 
in God's creation. Most people know about the opposable thumb. We got that one up on a lot of the critters who have hands. We're the only creature that walks upright without a tail to balance ourselves. That's pretty cool. And unlike just about every other creature in the world, our babies are completely useless. Most mammals, Tim knows what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> most mammals give birth to their young, and then those, those creatures, those young uh, animals, are able to, to be up on their legs and running around uh, in no time. Baby birds are, are famously useless for about two weeks where they need their food chewed for them, and then they're out of the, out of the nest and flying around and sustaining the car wash industry. But I'm not bitter. Um, but human children are uniquely helpless. They cry, they wail, they expel alien substances with inconceivable frequency. And you cannot teach them to do anything until they grow up and they gain that capacity to learn behaviors besides crying and wailing and venting themselves. Now, Paul draws on this image of infancy for the church in Corinth. And as you probably know by now, you know me fairly well, and one of my passions with scripture is trying to right misconceptions. I'm the guy who can't walk past the crooked photo frame without interfering with your house. And I've heard this milk meat idea used often about, as an idea about a state of learning, as, in, as if milk is for those who haven't learned much and meat for those who have learned a lot as in you learn the milk stuff, which is the Jesus, Bible, God, Sunday school answer type things. And then you graduate to meat school where you get to uh, experience doctrine and exegesis and theology. Uh, but I think this passage is far more about behavior than about knowledge. You are still acting worldly, Paul says, for there is still jealousy and quarreling among you. Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? I don't think Paul is challenging the Corinthians' ignorance here. He's challenging their lived behavior. And we know that when we come to Christ, the payment for our sins is given to God by his son's death, but that doesn't instantly mature us out of sinful habits we might have already had or otherwise instantly change our behavior. We're given a guiding light in our life so that we don't have to follow after our own ambitions and we can follow after Christ's designs for us. And we must be obedient to the Spirit of God as it convicts us. That's what changes us, obedience to the Spirit of God, not clever teaching by particularly charming leaders. Paul says, this whole notion of following Paul or Apollos or an earthly church leader is a foolishly human sort of thing to do. It's childish. It's a worldly instinct that we are supposed to have grown out of. And it's this unchanged uh, display of worldly behavior in the Corinthians that provokes him to say that you guys are supposed to be past this. You should have matured out. You should have been following the urgings of the Holy Spirit away from worldly instincts. And he redoubles on that lesson uh, with the following verses as we go into verses five to nine with these two new analogies. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned each 
to his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service, and you are God's field, God's building. So the church is God's field and God's building. Paul gives both these analogies, and each lends a different weight to the message he's giving. First, the field, this harvest metaphor. It's used frequently by Christ in the Gospels, and Paul picks it up here. He says that he planted the seed. He first brought the gospel to these people. He scattered the word among them. He made the first inroads. Apollos followed up on his subsequent work. But God could have sent anyone to do these things, and the church could still have grown. It pleased God to use Paul and Apollos, but they were not indispensable men. By contrast, if God doesn't move, nothing grows. If God does not act, no one's heart changes. There is no harvest, no plants, no one waters, and the field is dead. The harvest imagery conjures up, conjures up this idea of, uh, of those who hear the word as the harvest, as God growing up individuals and then sending out uh, workers to harvest them for the gospel. And that's true, but God doesn't stop there. Or rather, Paul doesn't stop there in his explanation. He says, you are God's field, his building. See, the product from the field is the harvest. It's a, it's a collection of many things. It's all the, the stalks of grain, each of which God made grow. It's a collection of the many, but a building is something else. It begins as many things and then becomes one thing. A building begins as bricks and wood and mortar, and by the end of the construction, it's a whole new thing with its own identity. No one looks at a building and thinks of it as a bundle of bricks and wood. It has its own identity. And all of that building's identity, all of its potential, rests on its foundation. And this talk of a foundation brings shades of another of Jesus' analogies, the man who builds his house on shifting sands. But it's not just the slow move of time and the shift of sands that Paul is worried about here. And he vividly illustrates what he means in verses 10 through 15. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the person uh, be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder receives a reward. If what is built is burnt up, then the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. This is one of the more mysterious verses that we have in Paul's letters, and I'll try and demystify it a bit. 
That foundation is Jesus Christ. And it follows that anyone who builds on that foundation should be building something intended to last, something worthy of the foundation. Now, some folks read this and they determine that Paul is using two categories when he's talking about the stuff the building could be made out of. The gold, the silver, and the precious stones, and the wood, the hay, and the straw. The suggestion then would be that uh, the latter will be burned up in the coming fire, but the, the former three, the gold, the silver, and the precious stones, would survive. Um, I'm not convinced that a house made of gold would do terribly well in a fire scenario. I don't think fireproof is the first word that comes to mind when we think of soft metals. But maybe I'm just being too harsh. Maybe it's just Paul didn't have the contextual firepower here to say build your churches from tungsten, gyprock, and asbestos. But it's clear that Paul is saying something like that, that the day, that is the capital D, the day, the day of the Lord, will test the quality of each person's church-building effort. God will test what these bad teachers and leaders have accomplished. And if the whole thing comes apart, then it comes apart. Even though it seems, according to this passage, that those teachers themselves will escape destruction and go into salvation. Now that's the interesting, mysterious part, because as Christians we sometimes knee-jerk react when we read about things like fire in Scripture, because there's an obvious analog we go to first. That's hellfire. And this clause says that the, builder might be, uh, the building might be destroyed, but the builder would escape the fire, and that doesn't quite fit the picture that we get of false teachers receiving God's full wrath. It paints a di different picture, one of a church leader or a builder, one acting as an apostle who will have his work tested. And it's possible he will fail that test and come into heaven with the embarrassment of having entirely wasted his life in ministry, building a church that displeased God, which is a different kind of terror of its own. Now, the Catholic Church goes even further using this verse, trying to explain the words they find there. This is the verse that launched the teaching about the doctrine of purgatory. If you're not familiar with the idea of purgatory, you're not missing much, but it's the notion that there's hell for heathens and that there's heaven for saints, and then purgatory is where everyone, except the actual sort of miracle-dispensing saint saints, uh, go for some fraction of eternity to burn off their, uh, the sins that they haven't had scrubbed off uh, by Christ's sacrifice in some kind of refining agony. It, if you've ever been overseas on a holiday and you've lost a big chunk of your life waiting for customs to grind through your passport, that kind of delayed torment is purgatory. Uh, designed to inflict suffering on sinful men, delivered by malefic, soulless drones, so much like the airport experience, indeed. Now, it's a silly doctrine. Uh, scripture doesn't tell us that Jesus died to take away some sins and then leaves you with the change. The purgatory idea leads then to silly uh, additional doctrines like the idea that pain, human pain literally cleanses sin, which leads to strange behaviors where uh, 
culty practices get employed. People will whip themselves or wear barbed wire around their legs to try and shave off some of their coming purgatory time, um, like a sort of a hell-abating Fitbit to count your pain uh, elements as you go through life. <laughs> Which seems like the kind of thing that might provoke the union of soulless, malefic drones to strike as protest their jobs being automated, but uh, this is not that kind of fire. This is not uh, the kind of fire that inflicts pain. This is a persecution fire we're talking about here, a, a metaphorical fire perhaps even. It tests the structure of a church, not the sinful hearts of those within it. But whether these are actual, uh, these are metaphorical flames or some kind of real persecution flames saved for the, the final day, the thrust of the passage is perfectly clear. God will test what is built on the foundation of his son. So builders, beware. Verses 16 and 17 escalate this imagery further. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Now, we have a difference between the person who destroys God's temple and the one who builds badly on God's foundation, a difference between a false teacher and a bad teacher. One has the promise of destruction, the other a costly judgment, but ultimately salvation. This is that difference between false teachers and bad teachers, those who don't know God and corrupt and exploit his church, and those who do know God but execute his will badly and produce this sort of weak, spiritually flammable church uh, waiting to be burned off its foundation in that testing time. And as we continue to study through Corinthians, Paul will have plenty more to say about false teachers. But the message, as far as we have it here, is perfectly consistent. God is the one who sends the builders. No church is built, no temple raised without the Spirit being invested in that operation. And as surely as man cannot build God's temple in his own power, man cannot really wage war against God's temple. God will avenge, and God will build up his people. We can trust in God's justice to defend his church and to punish those who damage and taint that which he has raised up for the dwelling of his spirit. Jesus is the foundation, the spirit is indwelling within, and the defense of the church and the vengeance for its sufferings, these belong to the Lord. Then Paul finishes this chapter's teaching with a warning that repeats his first point of alarm about the wisdom of the world. Verse 18, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you might become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or future, all 
are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. These passages uh, quote lines from, from Job and from Psalm 94, a proof that God has been working in contravention to the wisdom of the world throughout Scripture, and he's made no secret of it. But I love most this phrase, the do not deceive yourself phrase, which has roots in Jeremiah and the Old Testament as well. Deception is a funny thing because it's uh, just as often performed upon ourselves as upon anyone else. Deception typically happens when one party steers another away from the truth. And in the case that the deceived person had a good reason to trust their deceiver, we rarely hold that mistake against them. But we have that saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Because we know that we have an enormous capacity for deceiving ourselves. And being deceived a second time by the same trick that's at least in part choosing to be deceived. It's the logic of some couples who come together hoping to make a family but come apart again because of some terrible trial and then come back again and suffer the same problems without changing anything, hoping that this time she'll fix him, or this time he means it without changing themselves or their lives. Self-deception is a dangerous sin. One of the most enduring tales that we have in, in print or on film is uh, Frank Baum's The Wizard of Oz, and I think this has the deception idea down for us. Most living human beings in the English-speaking world have seen this film made in 1939, so I don't think we're in any fear of spoilers. But it holds up pretty well. For those of us who haven't seen it, who have never gotten around to crawling out from under that rock, the story revolves around a Kansas girl named Dorothy and her quest to return home from a strange place through a magical favor she's hoping to have granted by the vaunted, wonderful Wizard of Oz. And when she and her companions arrive at the Emerald City and go to visit the wizard, they're confronted by an enormous projection of this giant green head, booming out his refusal to help them in a voice that makes them all tremble. Oz tells them to go away and come back tomorrow. Only Dorothy seems to show any spine in this scene with Julie Garland's uh, immortal rendition showing her step forward even while shaking and then in a uh, cornball American accent. Well, if you were really that great, you'd keep your promises. But Oz is revealed... Don't, don't. But Oz is revealed to be a sham. Dorothy's little dog pulls aside a small curtain to reveal an unimpressive man frantically operating the machinery to keep the projector working and shouting into the microphone. He looks over his shoulder, realizes he's been made, and then turns back to the machine and starts working even harder and gives us the famous line, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. The great Oz has spoken. Of course, at this point, the jig is up, and no one's very impressed with him anymore. Dorothy and her friends confront the so-called wizard, who is not a wizard at all, 
and they confront him with the unimpressive truth of his nature and they get the help that he is able to provide. But if you can imagine what might have happened if they in fact did pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, if Dorothy and her companions had in fact simply left and come back the next day. Oz probably would have told them to keep going away again, or, well, worse than that, it would have made a terrible ending to the story. Once a fraud like that is revealed, you cannot pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And if they did, they'd be as much to blame for the situation they were in as the man himself. The world does not deliver on its promises. It offers nourishment that doesn't satisfy and wisdom that does not give answers and happiness that does not last. And for a church to go back to worldly behaviors, trusting in human leaders as if the human leaders could really uplift them and deliver them, is like seeing the curtain pulled back and then paying no attention to the man behind it. That man is important. That man and that curtain proves that that was a sham all along. And that the things the man had promised he would provide through magic would have to come from some other place. In Dorothy's case, the power to return home seemed to come from a pair of ruby slippers that she looted off the carcass of a dead witch back in Act One. But in the case of the church, what it needs has been given as foundation. The promises of Christ, the indwelling of the Spirit, and the unfailing eternal promises of the Father. Now this isn't to say there is no value at all in human leaders. It would be very counterintuitive for Paul to tell people instructively that there is no value in listening to people like Paul. But instead he makes this final clarifying announcement. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. That is this repeated Christ-centered message of servant leadership. The leaders belong to the church, not the other way around. In fact, even the world, with all its muted glories and broken promises, that in some way belongs to the church. I mean, who else could the world belong to but its creator and those who follow him? Life and death and present and future are swept into this promise as well. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. The church, its whole body, as the building of God and its members as the people of God who he himself has raised up and grown, they are accountable directly to Christ. There is no one we go through to get to Christ. False teachers will place themselves between the church and Christ. And there is a worldly instinct to place even good teachers between ourselves and Christ. While God will destroy those who move to destroy his church, he will judge by fire the works of those who build on his foundation. And it falls to each of us as believers, as individuals in a corporate Christian life 
in God's church. It falls to each of us to seek the voice of God's spirit and to follow his direction in our lives, personally and intimately, in prayer, in scripture, in all the circumstances in which God places us. To do less than that is to give up the responsibility that God has given us. To elevate impressive people or continue acting in worldly ways is to be acting like mere humans, like spiritual infants. But we are called to be more than that. We are sons and daughters of our heavenly Father. We are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Let's pray. Father God, you have placed us in this world and placed everything in the world at our disposal. You did not take us at once to paradise when we found you, but you left us in this world by design to spread your gospel and do your work. May we remember always our foundation, that sacrifice given by Christ on the cross. May we be attentive to your Holy Spirit as he leads and guides us and may we have your blessing as we strive to submit first and last to the lordship of your son, the king of your kingdom, and the only one with a name that can save us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.